Well, since the about the 1920s, we Americans have loved our movies. Unlike any other country in the world, we've really embraced this entertainment and storytelling medium. We love our movies so much that we can't help but make sequels. Now, the problem with this is that most sequels are rarely as good as the original. They all seem to just go downhill. Unless they're really special, sequels get lost and forgotten. For example, everyone knows, at least knows, of the movie Jaws, the movie that gave everyone a fear of sharks back in the 70s. But who knows Jaws 2? Did you even know there was a Jaws 2? Did you see it? Probably not. It wasn't very good. Same goes for the iconic movie Grease. It's another movie everyone's at least heard of. It's a, it's a classic. But did you even know there was a Grease 2? And if you didn't, you're not missing much because it was terrible. It's today pretty much an example of of bad sequels. Just go down the list, and most sequels are just huge disappointments when compared to the original. Indiana Jones, fantastic movie. Jurassic Park, my favorite as a kid. But their sequels, part two, terrible compared to the original. There are a few exceptions. In a few cases, a sequel equals or even surpasses the original. I might be revealing a little bit too much of my my nerdy nature here, but Star Trek II and Superman II Way better than their first, their, their first parts. And I'm talking about the 80s version of these movies. It's rare. Sometimes sequels are good. When it comes to the Bible, thankfully, it's not like most movies. The books of the Bible are filled with great truths, oftentimes told in the form of stories. Sometimes they even have sequels. But in the Bible, these sequels are always just as rich or as profitable as those who came before from 2 Samuel and 2 Kings in the Old Testament to 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy in the New Testament, that the second parts are always just as good as the first. And today, you know, you know what's coming. We're beginning a, a study of our, our very own sequel, 2 Peter. The sequel to the highly acclaimed 1 Peter. For the better part of a year, we've studied through 1 Peter in the Bible, aiming to be instructed and exhorted by God's word. And seeing we're already familiar with with the biblical author Peter, there's no better time than right now than to roll into 2 Peter and and study this book as well. And today we're going to begin this new book study. It's shorter, but still useful. 2 Peter is a highly instructive letter, but it's not a simple rehash of 1 Peter. The themes are new. The message is new. The emphasis is new. The gospel is the same. No longer is Peter concerned with helping persecuted believers endure suffering and hardship by imitating Christ. That message has been captured in 1 Peter. Now he has a new thrust to this letter because a new challenge faces the church, and that's false teachers. When a good movie comes out, it's not long before other people try and cash in on its success. I mean, after Star Wars, you know how many cheap, rip-off sci-fi movies there were? They were not, not as good as the original. They were just counterfeits, stealing from the original to make a quick buck. It doesn't take counterfeiters long to strike, and it's the same with the Bible, especially the New Testament. Right after it was written, people arose copying yet corrupting its message, distorting the truth so as to produce great error, all for personal gain. Early church was growing quickly. This Jesus guy was gaining quite a following. People saw, like, hey, that, that's, I want in on that. I want a following for myself. Unconcerned with God and the gospel, these false teachers plagued the early church and led many undiscerning souls into error. 
Nearly every New Testament epistle deals with false teaching in one way or another. Some of them, though, attack it head on. Second Peter is one of those that attacks it head on. In the face of so many opponents, Peter's desire with his second letter, much like Jude, is to lift up the truth, to tear down error, and all the while strengthen and encourage believers. Seeing that nothing has changed, and seeing that by sheer numbers today, there's more false teachers than ever before, just by numbers. Second Peter is still needed. This letter is never going out of style until Christ returns. The tares will always grow among the wheat. The wolves will always disguise themselves as sheep. And if the church lets its guard down against the tide of false teaching, even for a moment, it will not take long before it gets swept away. So for this reason, for many reasons, we now approach Second Peter. And I know you're going to be encouraged and instructed and challenged by what it says. It's shorter, but still it's packed with a lot of useful truths and looking forward to going through it. And to get you better acquainted with this letter today, I figured we'd jump right in with these first few verses. If you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. And we're not going to do an entire sermon on, on introduction and background, but I do want us to dive into the first few verses by way of introduction to get us acquainted with, with the new setting of Second Peter. So open your Bible, Second Peter chapter 1, and let's read the first few verses just to get us started. He begins, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So again, just by way of introduction, we're going to pace through these first couple verses and get better acquainted with with 2 Peter. So look again at verse 1. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a simple opening, but it's a great opening. It's very unique, actually. You have two names and two titles. Two names, two titles. Start with, the, start with the author, Simon Peter, two names. We already know Peter. We know Peter well. In fact, before I preached through First Peter, if you were here, I did an entire biographical sketch of Peter's life from the Bible, which you can get online. It's helpful to know who this man was. Although it's, it's especially significant when we see both of his names together. Not just Simon, not just Peter, he's Simon Peter. Simon is his old name. Peter is his new name. Simon is his Hebrew name. Peter is his Greek name. Here in 2 Peter, Peter actually gives his name as Simeon, which is the original Hebrew form of his name. And he does that to, I think, cover his bases. He's letting it be known that he sits between two worlds, the Jewish and the Greek, and he's been appointed to minister to both of them as an apostle. At the same time, though, these two names are are forever a reminder of Peter's old self and his new self. Your name back then was who you were. It represented you, your character. Your name was your character. That's why on several occasions when God changed a person, he changed their name. Abram was made Abraham. Jacob was made Israel. And Simon was made Peter. Simon was his old self the self-willed, self-interested fisherman. But when Jesus transformed him, he gave him the name Peter, Greek for the rock. He was going to be the one who would lead the church as a fisher of men now. Even after his new name was given, 
He was still referred to as Simon several times, mostly when he was acting like his old self. It seems likely that that Peter carried around his old name as a reminder. As Simon, he knew weakness. As Peter, he knew strength. As Simon, he knew guilt. As Peter, he knew grace. And he kept them together. After giving his two names, Peter gives his two titles, slave and messenger. That's what it is, verse 1, slave and messenger. That's what these words literally mean. Peter's not a slave of Rome, though. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He's not a messenger of Rome. He's a messenger of Jesus Christ. It's a special calling he has, though. He's an official representative of Christ. The word literally is apostolos. We call them apostles. These official delegates of Christ in the early church. As a slave, Peter exists to serve his master. But with a perfect master, like Christ, who has a perfect will, being his slave grants true freedom. And it's the same for all of us. It's this paradox taught in Scripture. You have to be his slave to be free. You have to die to live. You've got to lose your life to find it. Peter knew this, and so he identifies himself as a slave of Christ, one who serves him and therefore serves Christ's people. He's also Christ's apostle or special delegate, like I said. The apostles were select men of God who witnessed the resurrection. They were commissioned by the risen risen Jesus to testify of that resurrection. They were to tell the world of the Savior and testify of the gospel, which was made powerful by the resurrection. So together, though, you put them together, it's another great contrast. That's why I love this intro. It's just two contrasts. Not only does it give us this contrast with these two names, Simon and Peter, but there's also this great contrast with these two titles, slave and apostle. Being a slave was as low as you could go in society. There's no one lower than, than the slave. But in the church, being an apostle, that's as high as you could go. Second to Christ, it was the most significant position. But this is Peter. This is Simon Peter. He's a man between two worlds, slave and apostle. Simon and Peter. He writes this letter as Simon Peter, slave and apostle. He he writes with the authority of an official delegate, but also with the humility of a humble servant. And that's why people love 1st, 2nd Peter so much. Now let's move on to the audience. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter does not specifically identify his audience like he does in his first letter here in the intro. He's writing to Christians, those of the faith, but if you do a little bit of studying, you, you can find out who he's writing to. And Actually, what we learn is that he's writing the second letter to the same people he wrote his first letter to. And you learn that just by reading. Just, just turn the page to chapter 3. Just look at chapter 3, verse 1. He tells it right to you. He says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We'll see how he begins and ends his letter with this idea of reminder, reminding us of these truths that we cannot bear to forget. But we learn here who he's talking to. We have the same general audience as with First Peter. Now, do you remember... 
to whom he wrote 1 Peter. It was to all those Christian churches scattered in what we would call today Asia Minor. Several churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he's writing 2 Peter to basically the same people. They were in the minority in the Roman Empire. Persecution was starting to ramp up and getting it was becoming harder and harder to become to be a Christian. And now false teachers were entering the mix. And that's why he's writing 2 Peter. He writes about a year, most likely, after 1 Peter. They, they date this around 67, 68 A.D. He's probably still in Rome, and it's not long before he dies after this letter. Yet even here, even in this introduction, these opening greetings, it's often the case. Peter injects truth and doctrine. Did you notice that in the first couple of verses? It's not a simple greeting like, hey, Peter, Simon Peter, to the churches, hi. It's never a simple greeting. He, he doesn't want to lose an opportunity to inject truth and doctrine, as if he's already trying to remind the churches of the truths which are being assaulted by the false teachers. And I want you to see, this is often the case with these New Testament letters, just how theologically rich the introduction is. It's just the introduction, but it already has so many truths that are very impactful that we need to know. He says his opening words, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. That's something we know well, salvation by faith. But even faith, you know, is a gift. Even faith itself is a gift from God. Something we receive by grace. The famous verse, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Even faith is a gift. We're, we're totally dependent on God for salvation, which is why he gets all the glory. On our side, we're held responsible for believing and exercising faith. But on God's side, first, he must, as he did with Lydia in Acts 16.14, he must first open our hearts to see, to receive, to believe. He makes the first move. Of this faith, he says, it's of the same kind as ours. He could be saying that, hey, you Gentiles, you have a faith of equal value as us Jews. Or he could be saying that, hey, you lay people have a faith of equal value as us apostles. Both are true, and either way, we know there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. But to continue on in this theologically rich introduction, Peter reminds us that the saving faith comes to us, look in verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is another one. You read through these verses and you miss this stuff if you go quick. But this is such a rich truth that we can't bear to forget. To be saved, to enter heaven, what do you need? You need righteousness. You need perfect righteousness. Is that a problem? It's a problem because you're not perfectly righteous. You're not even close to being perfectly righteous, nor I, nor anyone. Because of our sin and our sin nature, we're far from it. I love how Isaiah describes this in the Old Testament. Just listen along, Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. It's the best we have to offer to God, our righteous deeds. To God, it's like a filthy garment. The best we have is not even close to being good enough. You're not righteous. It's like you're clothed in unrighteousness. 
God knows this, though, that we're helpless, that we're unclean. So by grace to, to save us, he makes us righteous. He has to. And he makes us righteous. He clothes us with perfect righteousness. Like Isaiah said elsewhere, Isaiah 61, verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. It's a perfect picture of what God does. It makes us wonder, though, how how can God do this? Because we're not righteous, so how can he just make us righteous? Doesn't seem fair, actually. But the only way is through Christ. When we place our faith and trust in him and his work on the cross, God counts us righteous by virtue of Christ and his finished work. It's like Philippians 3.9. such a key verse. You can listen to this, Philippians 3.9. Talking about our salvation, that we may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's what we need. We need this, this foreign righteousness. It's not ours, but it comes to us and makes us perfect. And that's what we get in Christ. So there's no other Christian than this. There's no other class of Christian than this. Those clothed and saved by the righteousness of Christ. Our sins nailed him to the cross. His righteousness lifts us to heaven. It's not fair, but it's grace. And we are thankful for it because we benefit from it. It's our salvation. And that's why faith, faith is the key that unlocks that salvation. We're going to see this later in chapter 2, but already this is different than what the false teachers were teaching. That they knew nothing of this way of righteousness. They certainly didn't live in it, chapter 2, verse 21. And as such, they will have no part in that future land, that future place where righteousness dwells. Have new heavens, new earth. That's in chapter 3. To be with God, you must be righteous. So are you righteous? Are you righteous before God? I hope that you can answer in your hearts, no, I'm not righteous before God. But Christ is, and I trust in him. So yes, by God's grace, through Christ, I am righteous. And nothing motivates a person to live righteously more than embracing this truth. This Jesus came to save us because he is our God and our Savior. That's what verse 1 says. That's how he's able to save us. Look again at verse 1. We've received a faith of the same kind. It comes by the righteousness of whom? Of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some people think that Jesus is never called God in the Bible. That just betrays their biblical ignorance. Several places, John chapter 1, verse 1, John chapter 20, verse 28, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, all call or equate Jesus with God. And here in 2 Peter, verse 1, 
we find the same Greek construction that we encountered when studying through Titus 2.13. I'll tell you, this might go over your head, but I'm going to tell you anyway, just to, to show you. You've got two words here, God and Savior. You see that? God and Savior. Both of those words refer to Jesus. In Greek grammar, according to what's called the Granville Sharp Rule, which I'm sure you all know, you have two nouns joined by a conjunction, governed by a single definite article. Both nouns refer to the same person. Right? You guys know that. This rule has been conclusively demonstrated in the Greek. And if that grammar flies over your head, just know this. It's showing that both of these words, God and Savior, they're referring to Jesus. He is God. He is Savior. Jesus is God in human flesh. The God who saves, the God who came to save. The subject of all manner of false teaching is right here, though. In one way or another, denying the person, the work of Christ. That's why Peter, along with the other writers of the New Testament, they hold fast the line of the deity of Christ. He's none other than God in the flesh. And if you abandon that ground, you abandon the gospel. Now, to finish off this this general introduction, look at verse 2. He's just just greeting them, but there's already a lot in here. He says, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, a very typical greeting among Christians back then. Grace, the means of all of our blessings. Peace, the chief result of our blessing. Peace with God, peace with others. The more these increase in our lives, the more blessed we are. Notice, Peter says that this grace and peace are a function of our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And that's the case. But not how you might think. When he says knowledge here, he's not referring to knowing of God. He's talking about knowing God. That distinction will become clear as we move on. This knowledge, though, is a big theme in 2 Peter. The the idea of knowledge or true knowledge is a big theme because these false teachers were were coming around and they were were teaching this false knowledge, this secret knowledge. He wants to make sure that they know what the true knowledge of God is, what it consists of, what it does. We're actually going to see this later today. But here we are. We've made it through these first couple of verses in 2 Peter, just, just as greeting. But bit by, bit by rather, bit by bit, we grow more acquainted with this second letter as we move through. There's already a lot in here, just these opening verses. We could spend longer here, but actually I want us to, to keep marching through this morning, through verses 3 and 4, because Peter really blends together these opening two verses, his greeting, with verses 3 and 4. It's a little tangent that we want to look at. Now, these were serious times back then, today. The church was facing serious challenges. And Peter, he's not concerned with talking to them about the sports and weather. He doesn't say, hey, Simon Peter, grace and peace to you. Did you check out the marathon in Athens last weekend? Now, hey, how, how's the weather in, in Asia Minor doing for you? He doesn't talk about sports and the weather. He doesn't have time for that. He wants to talk to them right away about that which is spiritually important. And so do we. That's what we're concerned with as well. So what does Peter say next in this kind of extended introduction? What's he going to talk to them about already? Well, he talks about Jesus and he talks about us. He's already mentioned Jesus three times in those first two verses. Did you notice that? Already. And that trend is going to continue. 
Most false teaching comes by far as a distortion of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And far be it from Peter to not tell us of the real Christ, his real person, his real work. And here in verses 3 and 4, he already is reminding us of the work of Jesus, what he's done for us, what he's accomplished for us, specifically what he's given to us. He's talking about this divine gift in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 through 4 contain some essential truths of the Christian faith. They're also very practical when you get into them. Like I said, the topic of the verses is this gift, this divine gift that comes from Jesus. So what is this gift? How do you receive it? What does it do? That's what we aim to find out. So I've got to say, we're going to move on to verses 3 and 4. This sermon has kind of a split personality. It's almost like two sermons in one. We spent some time doing some introduction, some general introduction, but we're going to change gears now and and move on. That's kind of what happens when you start a new letter and you have these very dense introductions where he goes from one topic to the next. But nonetheless, it's what we have. So all this being introduction, from here on, we want to consider with the rest of our time. From verses 3 and 4, three aspects of Christ's gift to all believers to help you in your spiritual walk. That's what we're going to do from now on. Verses 3 and 4, as we keep moving on, three aspects of Christ's gift to all believers to help you in your spiritual walk. And it's actually a very instructive couple of verses after we get past the introduction. The first is this. The first aspect is this, the nature of the gift. The nature of the gift. From verse 3, we ask, of course, what is this gift? What are we talking about here? What is this gift being given to us? And look again at verse 3. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The thrust of of this verse really revolves around this word for granted speaks of a gift being given to someone, uh, something bestowed upon another person. This gift was given by Christ. His, in verse 3, points back to Jesus from the end of verse 2. This gift was given by Christ's divine power. It's expected. He just referred to Jesus as God. Now in verse 3, he's attributing to Jesus this divine power, his divine power. And so it's going to be through this omnipotence, Christ's Power, the same power that created the world, that we are going to be given something. So we ask, what, what's this gift? What is this divine bestowal? What, what is the nature of it? And from verse 3, we quickly discern that it, this is a spiritual gift. This is a gift of spiritual resources. Verse 3 says that Jesus has given to us believers everything we need for life and godliness. Do you see that? That's a good verse. That's a verse to remember, that Christ has given to you everything you need for life and godliness. Let's take this a little further. This is a good verse. First, you have have all the spiritual resources you need for life. Everything you need for life. Talking about your spiritual life in Christ, your new life, from the beginning of that life to the continuation of that life, to the end of that life, you have everything you need, spiritually speaking. You have every spiritual resource you can think of. I mean, just think, God did not save you 
so that you would spiritually decay and just get worse and worse and worse. He saved you so that you could grow, that you could be like Christ. And in that, you give him glory. And so to aid our growth, he's given us resources. He's given us what we need to grow. That makes sense. It's like when you go to the fair and you win one of those little goldfish in a bag. They give you that bag of water with a little goldfish in it. You know the deal. It's not going to last long in that bag. Even though it's a little fish, it will consume all the oxygen in that water in about a day. And then it's going belly up. So if you if you intend to keep the little goldfish and, and you want to see it grow, you need to provide for its needs. You've got to give it what it needs to live and grow. So if you're going to do that, you need to buy a little fish tank, maybe three gallons. Get a little water filter or air pump. You've got to feed your fish every day. If you do that, it will grow. It will live. It will grow. Goldfish, by the way, they'll keep growing as long as you provide for their needs. And it's really the same for us, spiritually speaking. It's the only difference is that God, through Christ, he's already provided for every spiritual need. That the food, the air, the water, spiritually speaking, that we need, we have it. We have a lifetime supply of every spiritual resource we need to live, to grow. He says, for godliness, everything you need to live a godly life before the Lord, you have. To live a life of obedience, reverence, you have it. There's no good work that you're not equipped to do. There's no sin from which you can't escape. You have the grace, you have the divine provision for all things. He says, for everything. This is a good thing to know. God is not cheap when it comes to giving out grace. You know that? You realize that? God is not cheap when it comes to giving grace. Listen to this verse. Do your best to pay attention. I'm not going to make you turn, but but listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He encourages them. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good work. It's the same thing. God just overflows you with grace. So you, you, you're able to do everything he calls you to do. And then some. Philippians 4, verse 19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Same thing. Just the divine gift of salvation. But then in addition to that, spiritual resources. The gift we're talking about is spiritual resources. And you have everything. We have it all. Think of the implications of this gift, though. This means you can't blame God for your poor spiritual life or your lack of growth. You can't blame God for that. You can never tell God, God, you just didn't give me enough grace here to obey you. God, you didn't, you didn't enable me to avoid this sin. It's, it's really your fault. You can't say that. It's never true. Your sin, your lack of growth, God says it's your responsibility. Your shortcomings are never due to a lack of resources, ever. It would be like a construction worker saying, hey, I'd really love to build this house, I just don't have the tools. Meanwhile, in his truck, he has every tool ever invented. You just You can't, no excuse. There's no excuse. And what do you have going on in your life where you think to yourself, I just I can't do this. I just can't obey God here. I, I just have to sin. 
I can't do what God is calling me to do. What areas of your spiritual life have you just given up on? This is, this is too hard. or I'll, I'll never grow past this sin. But do you realize that's a lie? You have every resource you need to do anything and everything that God asks you to do. You already have the spiritual resources and this gift that comes from Christ of all spiritual resources, it removes every excuse. No excuse. No excuse will stand before him. He's given you everything you need. At the same time, this gift encourages. It's an encouraging gift that you have everything you need. It'd be like the construction worker wanting to build a house and someone just gives him every single tool. That's pretty nice. You have everything you spiritually need to glorify God in this life, and that should motivate you to do so. That should encourage you that you can do what he calls you to do. You can obey. You can avoid sin. You can. A source of hope, you have it. A source of strength, you have it. A source of joy, comfort, peace, you have it. The means to obey God to avoid sin, you already have it. The means to grow in holiness, you have it. What spiritual resource can you think of that you don't have? There are no excuses. But let this gift, which you have already received if you are in Christ, if you know him in salvation, let this gift remove your excuses for the ungodliness in your life, but let it also motivate you and encourage you to strive after him, to live that life and godliness that he calls you to live. Now, this gift that we're talking about here, this gift of spiritual resources, it has been granted to you. Remember I said that's a key word in verse 3. It's been granted to you. It talks about a gift being given in the past with results that continue into the present. So in other words, it's a gift that keeps on giving. You had it at salvation and, and just continually throughout your life. God overflows you with this gift of spiritual resources. We have an important question, though. Okay, that gift sounds nice. How do I receive it? How do I receive the gift? It's one thing to give someone a gift, but they need to receive it. It's like the worker who wants to build the house. He's been given every tool he needs, but he still has to go to the truck, get the right tool, and then use it. So how do we receive the gift of these spiritual resources? How do we access them? We are held responsible for accessing the spiritual resources God has given us in Christ. How do we do that? How do we receive everything we need for life and godliness? We find this answer in the second half of verse 3, which brings us to the second aspect of Christ's gift for all believers. We start with the nature of the gift. Secondly now, the means of the gift. The means of the gift. In other words, how we get it. The means of the gift. Look again at verse 3. He says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let me unpack this for you. Every spiritual resource that we need for the Christian life, beginning, middle, end, comes to us through what? How do we get it? Through, he says, the knowledge. The knowledge of God and Christ. Knowing Christ is the key to salvation and growth. 
Do you know that? Knowing Christ is the key. That's something we need to explain. We really have to explain. That's a huge point. That simply by knowing Christ, you can unlock God's power in your life. But what do we really mean by knowing Christ? You really have to understand what we're talking about here with this true knowledge. Like we'll see later, Peter unpacks more and more. What is this true knowledge he's talking about that can change you, that unlocks all of these spiritual resources? What's this knowledge? Well, when it comes to knowing Christ, we're not talking, as I hope you know, mere head knowledge. This is not some superficial recollection of of the facts about Jesus. That's not what we're talking about when it comes to knowing Christ. The demons, hey, they know all about Christ. They know about him. They have all the facts about him, but they don't know him. That's not true knowledge. They know about him. They don't know him. This true knowledge, then, it's referring to this personal knowledge, personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible uses the word to know in a relational sense, oftentimes. It's a knowledge gained in conversion. As he calls you with the divine, effectual call, like verse 3 mentions, God enables you to see Christ's true glory and excellence, like the verse says. You come to see him for who he really is. You come to know him. He knows you. You love him. You follow him. You confess him as Savior and Lord. Think about this. To know Christ means he goes from being the Savior to your Savior. He goes from being the Lord to your Lord. That's how you know Christ. You behold his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see his excellence, his moral virtue. And as God calls you to himself by giving you eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, it brings you to your knees. And like Thomas, you confess, my Lord and my God. You confess. You know him. That's true knowledge. And now get this. This true knowledge, through that, through knowing Christ like that, God grants to you every spiritual resource you need. That's the key right there. That's the means of the gift. It's through knowing Christ. Listen to this pair of verses. Again, I'm not going to make you turn today, but just listen. John 17.3 says this. John 17.3. Jesus says, This is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How does he describe eternal life? Eternal life. Knowing God. Knowing Christ. John 15 verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And forget spiritual resources. Apart from Christ, you can't do anything. But remember, this knowledge, it's not head knowledge, it's relational knowledge. So the idea of abiding, dwelling with, relationship is what we're talking about. By knowing Christ, by abiding in him, you can bear fruit both with salvation and sanctification, life and godliness. Knowing Christ is the key. Do you get that? Knowing Christ is the key. And I know this can be a little hard to grasp for some, so let me try and illustrate it. Imagine you have have a tube running from your brain to your heart. Another one from your heart to your feet. Okay? Now, when God saves you, what's his desire for you after salvation? 
His desire is that you would walk like Jesus. He wants you to walk like Christ, to become like his son. That's what gives him glory, right? How's that happen? That, that happens through an inner transformation. It's the only way. You must be transformed inside out to walk like him. So how does God bring about this inner transformation? It comes through knowledge, through true knowledge. Let me explain that. The picture, it's like God pours this true knowledge into your brain. But that doesn't change you. That does not change you. That just gives you a head knowledge of Christ, God, the gospel, so on and so forth. You just have a head knowledge. But as you come to embrace this head knowledge, embrace these truths, this knowledge moves from your head to your heart. And when you embrace the knowledge of God in your heart, that changes you. You're transformed. Your life changes, your goals change, your priorities change, everything changes. Then once your heart has been changed by the knowledge of God, that knowledge moves again. This time from your heart to your feet. And that knowledge compels you, causes you to what? To walk. To walk like Christ. That's how it works. That's how knowledge can actually change the way you live. Which is what God wants. For some people though, the knowledge of God never moves beyond their head. It never goes beyond head knowledge. And they know facts, but that's it. It's just head knowledge. It never changes their heart, never convicts them, never challenges them, never moves them to pick up their cross and follow him daily. And because it never changes their heart, this knowledge of, of Jesus certainly does not change their actions. It's not moving them and motivating them to walk like him. That's what the false teachers were like. They had some knowledge. Some of it was true but it never went beyond their head and they did not live righteously. Instead, look, God has given you all the spiritual resources you need. You have everything you need. But you need to tap into them. You need to access these resources. How do you do that? You do that by by knowing Christ, knowing the truth, knowing God. This knowledge is not just for your brain. It, It should compel you, leading to a changed heart and a changed life. I trust that if you're here today as a believer in Christ, you want to glorify God with your life, right? I hope. You want to please him in all respects. How do you do that? You're going to need some spiritual resources to do that for life, for godliness. God gives them to you. He gives you everything you need. How do you access it? By knowing Christ. So now the simple question, how can you know Christ? Through scripture? Through the gospel? How can you abide with Christ? Through prayer, through the church. You just need to know the truth. Fill yourself with the truth and then embrace it. Truth matters, contrary to what the world will tell you today. But as you know it and embrace the truth, that will change you. This is is basic stuff in a sense. These are basic truths. The applications are going to be really simple. If you want to apply this, read your Bible. Find Christ in Scripture. Get to know God. Get to know the Gospel. Believe in Him. It's all basic stuff. But as we'll see when later in Second Peter, when you're up against false teachers, you better go back to the basics. You better make sure you have your basics right. When you're confronted with error, the last thing you need is a shaky foundation. So, already, this is just the introduction. Peter's opening with this strong show of truth. 
The basics, sure. But he wants to make sure they sit on solid ground. So are you on solid ground yourself this morning? Or are you built on the solid ground of Christ, of knowing him, so that you may be filled with all these spiritual resources for life and godliness? Do, do you know him? If you do, if you've been changed by this knowledge, you know him, your, your head, your heart, your, your feet, you walk like him, then you can see that the third aspect of this gift, which comes in verse 4, the third aspect of this divine gift, the result of the gift. The result of the gift from verse 4. We saw the nature of this gift, of spiritual resources, what it is, what it looks like. We saw the means of this gift, how, how you get it through this knowledge. Now, what, what's the result, though? Well, what does it do? Well, look at verse 4. He says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, I know for most of you, it happens. You read a verse like this, or you read through these verses, it gets confusing. Because he goes here, he goes there. He's, he's building off of these terms, a lot of branching statements. So I want to try and simplify for you. Peter, he's hanging this thought in verse 4. He's hanging it right off of the end of verse 3. So speaking of knowing Christ and his glory, his excellence, by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. See the word in verse 4 for granted? It's the same word he just said in verse 3. He's talking about the same thing, the same gift, the same train of thought here. The gift of salvation on all these spiritual resources in Christ. Again, this gift comes by knowing Christ. Only now in verse 4, Peter describes this gift in terms of receiving the promises of God. Promises of eternal life, promises of heaven, of spiritual resources. All of these promises are ours now. But what's new in verse 4 is we see the result. That's what he's showing. He's showing now the result of this gift these promises, these, these spiritual resources. We have this result. So what is it? What, what's the result of this gift given? Of life, of life and godliness, of spiritual resources. We see this in verse 4. There's a positive result and a negative result. Positive, negative. Let's start with the positive. First, verse 4, he says, positively as we receive everything that Christ has promised to us through faith, he says, we become partakers of the divine nature. You become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, ironically, as Peter writes this letter against false teaching, a lot of people today use this verse to promote false teaching. Which it is quite ironic. And by no means is Peter teaching here that Christians become little gods or big gods, or whatever, any sort of divine being. That's not true. Contrary to what some false teachers say today, even in Christ, we're still human. We're not divine. That being said, what, what does this mean, to become a partaker of the divine nature? The word partaker here refers to partnering with someone. The word in the Greek is koinonos, which is the verb form of what you might know, koinonia, which means fellowship. Some of you know that. 
Certainly, this is not the word Peter would have used if he wanted to teach that we become little gods or divine. It was not taught nowhere in Scripture. But this is the perfect word to use if Peter wanted to teach that in Christ we fellowship and partner with the divine nature. And that is taught all throughout the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, you find this, this radical new teaching. Paul talked about it in Colossians 1.27. He called it a mystery, which means it's not revealed in the Old Testament. It's only revealed in the New. This glorious truth, as he calls it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You get that? Christ in you. That's different. The Old Testament taught that the Messiah would come, would save his people. But it never taught that the Messiah would be in his people, would dwell with them, in them. That, that's new. And that's, that's radical to them. But that, that's true. Now, through Christ, all believers possess the riches of the indwelling God. God in you. That's what Jesus taught. John 14, 23, remember this? Jesus answered, said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Father, Son, coming to the believer, making their abode with him. How would this take place, though, just before Jesus taught that this Trinitarian God would be with believers primarily through God the Spirit. Just before this, John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give to you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because, look at this, he abides with you and he will be in you, the Spirit. This is the mystery in the Old Testament. Today, we know it, maybe take it for granted, but what a truth, the indwelling God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christ's name means, Emmanuel. In salvation, you know Christ. He knows you. He even dwells with you. He shares his life with you. That's eternal life. That's how you get it. He shares his life with you. And when this happens, over time, you start to bear the family resemblance as you are adopted by God into the family of, of his own, you start to look like Christ. You're still human. Trust me. We know, hopefully. But as you walk like Christ, you start to look like him, and that's what God wants. That's good news. This is a good result of God's gift in Christ. We get to know Christ. We get to fellowship with him, have him with us always, eventually be made like him perfectly. These are good results, and they motivate us to live like him even now, to bear the family resemblance even now. At the same time, at the end of verse 4, we see this negative result from this gift in a good way, in a good way, a negative result. We, he says, we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. He's talking about the path of destruction left by sin in the world, which stems from fallen human desires. Sin leaves behind in its wake nothing but death and decay. This word for corruption pictures like a stinking, rotting carcass. But that's the spiritual result of sin. We, we have escaped that, though. In Christ, you know, we escape the power of sin and the penalty of sin. 
And in the future, we'll escape the very presence of sin in Christ. It's what we escape. And that's good. Those are more good results of this gift given to us in Christ. So we can be thankful for God's gift of salvation, of these spiritual resources. By them we can grow and escape sin, all of the results they bring. This, again, can and should motivate us to be free from sin's presence all the more here and now. So this is God's gift to us in and through Christ. And I hope you're, I hope you're encouraged just to know that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Do you know that? Have you known that? And does that change you? You, you? you have everything you need for life and godliness by this gift. It means there's no spiritual mountain you cannot climb. And there's no valley of sin you cannot escape. If you're in Christ, you have everything you need. So just keep running the race as you grow in your knowledge of God, the gospel, the cross, Jesus. Let that knowledge move from your head to your heart, convicting you, challenging you. And let that move from your heart to your hands, to your feet, compelling you to live that life of godliness that he calls you to. All the while you get to enjoy the wonderful results of such a gift, knowing God, fellowshipping with him, having him with you, escaping the grasp of sin. That's good stuff. Those are good results of what he gives to us. You need to embrace that. But needless to say, here in 2 Peter, it's jumping right out of the gates. There's no slow start to 2 Peter. You dive right in. Already we've been confronted with some, some simple yet heavy truths. But this is what we need. We need the truth. I hope you, I hope you really believe that. You need the truth in your life practically. You need truth. And you'll see more and more when you're up against false teaching, the best defense is a good offense. Assault it with the truth. Know the truth, cherish it, believe it, defend it. The truth is a source of our lives and our hope. And Christ left behind the church to be, he says in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar and support of the truth. This is the, the church is the last stand of the truth in this world. So far be it from us here at this church to abandon the truth. We want to set it before us forever. And we will continue to do so with many more great truths to come in Second Peter. For now, let's pray. Lord in heaven, we, we thank you for your truth. You are the God of truth. And I pray you might sanctify us in your truth. And we certainly confess that we need it. We need truth in our lives. This world is full of so much error, either directly or indirectly, so many false truths and false teaching, and they confront us. What will we do? I pray like, like the psalmist we heard earlier in this morning, like Peter now, we just fill our minds with truth. We go back to what we know to be true from Scripture. There's nothing more true to know. And we remind ourselves of God, the gospel, the Savior, everything that is true. And from these truths, they, they convict our hearts. Convict us and convince us of your truth, Lord, that it moves us to follow. It challenges us to change. I pray, Lord, for all of us that your truth then then penetrates our lives. It moves to our hands, to our feet, compelling us to walk like Christ. We want to be like him. That must come from within, though, to glorify you. So may it happen. Help us all to be men and women of the truth and to, to glorify you through your truth. Thank you for revealing it to us. It is our life. 
and to you be the glory for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen.